Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week is a queen-heavy episode of Electric Boogaloo. My guest is Shiloh Carroll. Shiloh is helping me cover Danny's fifth POV chapter. Shiloh is on staff at Tennessee State. She's written a book called Medievalism in a Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. Steve and I talk about the season five plot lines of Sansa and Cersei and Danny, and then I continue my conversation with Kavita Finn about Cersei in my bird's eye view section. A quick word about my conversation with Steve. The first five or so minutes of that conversation are all about Batman. And so if you're a Game of Thrones purist, feel free to skip ahead. But if you like hearing Steve and I talk about the stuff that doesn't matter about schlocky movies... You might also be interested to know that Steve and I are launching a new podcast. It'll be coming out in the new year. I'll have more to say about that in the next couple of weeks. It's just basically Steve and I picking out the minutia of movies that don't matter and talk about the things that amuse us about those schlocky movies. I think it goes without saying that it's not for everyone. But if you like that kind of thing, you might enjoy the first few minutes of my conversation with Steve. Without further ado, here's Dr. Shiloh Carroll. Well, Shiloh, where can people find you online? I am at shilohcarroll.wordpress.com and also complaining about things a lot over on Twitter at Medievalism-ish. <laughs> and again, the title of your book? It's Medievalism in a Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones. Excellent. Do you mind, just because I was reading a little bit of your book today, and you had a helpful distinction between medieval and medievalism, mm -hmm. and I wonder if mm -hmm. you could help our listeners make that distinction. Yeah, so medieval is when we talk about the time period between about 500 and about 1500 A.D., Mm -hmm. roughly. I mean, there's always arguments about when exactly the Middle Ages stopped or started. Yeah. Um, but the the culture and the literature and the history and the politics and everything that happened in Europe and kind of Northern Africa and the Near East around that time period is medieval. Mm. Medievalism is what we've done with it since then. So all of the ways that we have recast and reinterpreted and demonized or glorified or whatever we have felt like we needed to do to the Middle Ages mm. based on our own biases and needs and literatures and that sort of thing is medievalism. Right. So, for instance, would you – where does a book like A Game of Thrones sit? Is it a work of medievalism? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. It's like full stop. Yeah. Right. 
And then, of course, at the same time, you know, let's say something on film and historical episode that has mm-hmm. no fantasy narrative at all. That is also a work of medievalism. Yes. Because you're basically taking that particular subject matter and you're putting it in service to a modern media and modern audience consumption. Absolutely. Yep. Exactly. Right. Um, what about like like modern cosplay? Would that also be considered <laughs> medievalism? If you want to get really hair splitty and parsy, we can talk about neo medievalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me, um, tell me about I mean, neo medievalism. To keep it simple, I usually just call all of it medievalism and, and make fellow academics really angry with me. Um, but I, I like to be able to pull people in and not like drive them off at the no, target. No, no, no. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> I, think that, I think that people listening to this podcast are the kind of folks that would like to know what is neo-medievalism. Okay, so there's kind of two prongs to it. One is it's a form of medievalism that takes its own understanding of the Middle Ages from another medievalist text. So the fantasy stuff that was written based on Tolkien, Mm. where they're not looking back to any kind of historical understanding of the Middle Ages. They're looking at another fantasy understanding, for example, of the Middle Ages. Yeah, they're imagining a world that never existed. Yeah. And sort of and or a sort of playful, purposefully anachronistic sort of use of the Middle Ages, like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where Terry Jones is a medieval historian. He knows what he's talking about. The Holy, the movie is wildly anachronistic on purpose, not because he doesn't know what he's doing, but because he's playing with it. Sure. Or um, A Knight's Tale. Mm hmm. So purposefully and playfully anachronistic and not just we borrowed this from at like three removes from somebody who knew what they were talking about with about the Middle Ages. Uh, That is very helpful. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Revisiting this chapter, Shiloh, it was Mm -hmm. just I mean, I just got all the feels all again. They just rushed back in. You know, just the visceral description of the stallion's heart. Mm hmm. The kind of the shock and dismay at Viserys walking into the feast, drawing his sword, and you just know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. I think that the first time I read this, I was just like, Viserys is like, you deserve every bit of this. And I felt a little bit sorry for him this time. <laughs> yeah, um, this time through, I realized I had forgotten that both of these incidents happen in the same chapter. Mm. Because there's so much that goes on in this chapter, it's easy to forget that the horse heart ceremony and the crowning mm. are in the, the same chapter. Yeah, um, but yeah, there, there is so much with, if you look at it with like prophecy and ways of talking about war and conquest mm-hmm. and then the whole golden crown thing, there is so much thematic setup happening in this chapter. Oh, okay. Tell me what. Tell me about the thematic setup. I'm curious to hear what you've noticed. Well, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, this is the first real prophecy that we get oh, in yeah. the series, sure. or and and prophecy, or I guess more accurately, interpretation of prophecy is a major mover of the plot going forward. Right. Which That's is interesting true. because this is one of those that doesn't come true because Rako dies. Right, yeah, depending on how you interpret it, right? Because mm-hmm. I was thinking this time through, I was thinking, could this prophecy 
be total bullshit. You know, that mm-hmm. could be, that's one option. Another option is that the crone who is prophesying, could she be talking about, you know, one of the dragons? Sure. Um, which would be considered Danny's children who who are also sort of on the way, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not they're not cooked yet but they're yeah. they're on, almost out of the oven or could this be something like i guess it's always a question of like with these kinds of prophetic utterances a lot of times when they don't come true i'm thinking like in the real world <laughs> mm-hmm. when people try to appeal to prophecy and it doesn't come true people who are invested in the prophecy try to reinterpret it mm-hmm. In a way that sort of, you know, doesn't undermine the original prophecy. And it could be that that's how I'm reading it. You know, it could be that I want to read something into the prophecy. And so that I'm sort of shifting, maybe I'm being a little bit slippery (laughs) with how I interpret it. Possibly. Um, I also think about when we get some uh, etymology of Prince and Valerian later from Eamon, Hmm. how... It's like, oh, it could be princess. And I'm like, I wonder if she actually means Dany here instead uh, of because she's looking at her, like looking yeah. at her terrified. Right. It's like, hmm. But the culture would much more prize a, a man, obviously. So maybe she's right. maybe the crone is just kind of like, I'm going to say it's Rago. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. I absolutely (laughs) want to talk about a few gender issues with you. Before we do that, let me go ahead and read a synopsis that I've written of the chapter. (laughs) Danny is in Vase Dothrak, surrounded by the crones of the Dosh Kaleen. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing any of this correctly. (laughs) Um, According to tradition, she must eat an entire raw stallion heart. If not, her baby could be born weak, deformed, or female. After much work, she manages to swallow the last of it. This is met with pride by her husband and is followed by prophecy and chanting. The crone gives the child the title Stallion Who Mounts the World. Danny is cheered and paraded until arriving at a lake called the Womb of the World, where she enacts a ritual ablution. After watching, Danny and Drogo perform a quite public act of coitus. Later that evening, a feast is set in her honor. Viserys arrives late, insults Danny, and unsheaths his borrowed sword. Drogo promises a crown, then his blood riders disarm the would-be king, break his wrist. After melting his golden accessories in a soup pot, Drogo forces the pot over Viserys' head, killing him. Danny observes that he was no dragon. So, uh, Shiloh Carroll, would you <laughs> like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? Oh, chaos all the way. Oh, all right. <laughs> chaos. All right. You take the first rung. Okay. Um, I think we have pretty much covered the prophecy thing, unless you wanted to talk more about prophecy. No. I mean, clearly there's a gender thing happening there, and we mm-hmm. could talk about gender as well. Mm, gender and prophecy. <laughs> okay, here's here's what I was going to ask you. Mm-hmm. Right? So, does the Dosh Kaleen, you know, the crones who live in Vaisdogthrak, mm-hmm. are they a legitimate authority or are they glorified slaves? That is a really good question. In the books, it, I mean, we only really see them this once in the books so far. 
Right. And they do seem to be a legitimate authority here. In the show, when we get them again, they obviously come off as kind of glorified slaves. Yeah. So... Right. So here's the thing. I mean, even in this chapter, there's a couple... We could go a couple different directions here. Mm -hmm. I wanted to read this one passage. Even the mightiest of cows bowed to the wisdom and authority of the Dosh Kaleen. Still, it gave Danny the shivers to think that one day she might be sent to join them, whether she willed it or no. Mm -hmm. So here we have... On the face of it, yes, they absolutely have authority, and yet not the freedom to leave. Yeah. So maybe we have a both and situation here. I mean, I think I always read this as, oh, no, they're glorified slaves, and they've got sort of this domestic authority, but they don't have real authority. And then reading this, I thought, maybe I got that wrong. No, I I can definitely see it as a both and sort of situation. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other similar situations in other parts because he does really like to mirror cultures huh cersei maybe where she's she's queen but she only has so much authority and she's still is told what to do a lot i was having a conversation with someone that said catelyn is sort of this great example of someone Mm -hmm. Who's got a great political mind, and yet she can't choose where she lives. She gets, you know, married off, and she goes and lives in Winterfell. She never really feels comfortable at Winterfell, mm-hmm. even though she's kind of can rule the roost there, and absolutely has authority over most of the people at Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, she can't leave. This is where she's going to live the rest of her life. So, I mean, it could just, but I do get the sense that. There's something kind of hyper domestic about the Dosh Colleen. And if you want to get, I can't re- can never remember which one is Watsonist and which one is Doyleist, but <laughs> if we wanted to get meta about it, they're really a plot device more than anything else. And until we get a bit more information about them, I think it's going to be hard to call which side they fall on, if either. That's interesting that you say that. I wanted to get a little bit into Miriam as Dur a little bit later, mm-hmm. but I, I see almost a... I don't know, something like a mirrored bookend mm-hmm. between these two, you know, sort of uh, authority. Miri Mazdor is clearly, uh, she calls herself a god's wife. Mm-hmm. And she's a healer and she, you know, she's a community leader, basically. Um, you could call her a priestess or whatever, but she's a mm-hmm. lot more than that. And she also has a prophecy for Danny, but it, I think it, it's a little bit, you know, there's it's tinged with sarcasm, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so Danny meets this one crone here in Vice Dothrak. Here's this prophecy, and and kind of supportive of Danny's progeny. And then you have Miri Mazdur, who's clearly not supportive of Danny's pro- progeny. A little bit later on, mm-hmm. uh, she almost Miri Mazdur almost undoes anything that this particular crone sets in motion. I suppose. Yeah, and of course, there's the question of whether it's supposed to be a prophecy or just a really poetic way of saying never. Yeah. No, that's what I mean. <laughs> tinge with yeah. yeah. <laughs> tinge with sarcasm. I think I think yeah, that's probably what it is. Although there are a lot of fans that parse mm-hmm. out the the fine points, I suppose. Yeah. Um all right, so there's that part of it. That there's that gendered part of it. But there's mm-hmm. also we also find in this chapter that the entire ritual in the first place is meant to ensure that this child is a warrior. 
which means it cannot be weak, deformed, or female. Yeah. So this chapter has me going in several directions here, and I, I was hoping that maybe you could help me navigate it. <laughs> Do you view this as the weak, deformed, and then the lowest of all female? like, Or even worse than being weaker, deformed, female? You know, like a really Ferengi kind of intonation <laughs> of female. Female. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you're reading this? Or, 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 or are you reading it differently? Um, I don't think I ever thought really closely about the exact order of the words there. But yeah, I could see it as... Or, like, worst of all, a girl. <laughs> I mean, it is one way to read it. <laughs> I mean, when Danny's reflecting on the Dosh Kaleen, she they're very intimidating. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they clearly, they seem to have all the authority in this particular location. She absolutely does not want to join them. <laughs> You know, it's not like it's not like she wants to become one of these crones one day, uh, yeah. but she knows that that's kind. Of, if she's a Khaleesi, she knows that's kind of her fate, uh, or at least one version of what could happen to her. Mm-hmm. I almost get the sense that this is less her own thoughts and more what they have told her. Hmm. So it's less that she's like, "Oh no, it could be a girl," and we're like, "They've said if I don't do this right, it could be weak or deformed or female." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Shiloh, I wanted to ask you about this custom in Vaisdothrak about not having any steel. Mm-hmm. I think that I originally thought that there were no weapons allowed, but Danny's not even allowed to like have a, a, like a fork and a knife or something like that. Mm-hmm. Clearly, upon reading this the second time or you know this time around, it's pretty clear to me that no steel at all is allowed. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is drawing from kind of this medieval conception, steel and magic can't coexist. Have you heard this before? Mm-hmm. That cold, the cold iron thing, yeah. Oh, is it iron? Is it iron and magic can't coexist or something? It's, it is iron, but I've also seen it as okay. there's enough iron in steel that steel also counts I as see. a magic um, negator. Yeah, where does um, that originate? I'm most familiar with it from fairy lore. Okay. So probably the Celtic sort of fairy thing. I'm not sure if it crosses over into Norse. I would have to look it up. Okay. All right. But it's it's a pretty well-established sort of Celtic mythology mm-hmm. that there's a, there's a sense in which... The fairy iron... cannot handle cold iron. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes... All right. That's interesting. Okay. So... I wonder if some of that lies behind some of this Dothraki mythology that Martin's inventing. Hmm. But it does set up that really arresting conclusion to the chapter Mm -hmm. where Viserys doesn't end up spilling any blood. And so, you know, this is kind of a a really clever way for Drogo to keep his promise. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, ish ish. (laughs) (laughs) by the very strict letter of (laughs) right yeah again with the loopholes (laughs) uh uh-huh uh-huh it was interesting in the previous danny chapter jorah explains to danny that there was a misunderstanding between drogo and viserys that they Mm -hmm. they view gifts differently 
or they, they, they view this arrangement differently. In this chapter, it's very clear that Viserys thinks that he's bought an army. Mm-hmm. And he's bought it with his younger sister. So yeah. he paid the price for his army. He wants the, he wants what he paid for. Mm-hmm. Well, in the previous Danny chapter, Jorah basically explains to Danny that this is not how Dothraki view arrangements like this. Mm-hmm. Drogo accepted a gift from Viserys, and now it's Drogo's choice to give a gift back. Which he intends to do. It, it seems like he does intend to give uh, Viserys a gift back, but it's not like he's owed anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so there's this fundamental misunderstanding. And of course, here we have again in this chapter Viserys walking in and proclaiming, he, you know, he got the the woman, but he never paid for her. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Drogo finally says. You want a crown? I'll give you a crown. And I am tired of you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Lilirio later says, of specifically of Marcella, but he says to queen her is to kill her. But crowning being a death sentence, I think this is the first time it comes up in its most literal possible way. Right. And then much more figuratively throughout the rest of the books as kings and queens just start dropping dead yeah exactly you know yeah that's that's, it is kind of true the famous line of course if you play the game of thrones you win or you die Mm -hmm. the next line should be and you're also gonna die on the throne and it may actually you might actually die quicker if you actually get Mm -hmm. the throne you win and you die you win and you die (laughs) you know it does seem to me like a pretty fast way to your grave is to actually win the Iron Throne at some point. Mm-hmm. Or any kind of crown. Or any kind of crown. <laughs> I mean, we've got Rob, we've got Balin, we've got Viserys. Yes. Just, yeah. That's right. You know. I think he's our, is he our first major character death? That's a good question. I think he might um, be. Yeah. The only other one I could think of that might rise to this level is Jory. Jory dies. I do think that that Viserys is more important for Danny's plot. Absolutely. Than Jory is for Ned's plot. I think he's at least the very first of George's. He did this to himself deaths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like he had it coming deaths. I think he might be the first one of those. Yeah. And not just somebody caught in the crossfire. That's, I'm glad that you brought this up because. I always think like, oh, yeah, well, everyone's going to die. George kills people every other chapter. But mm-hmm. here we are. We're halfway through the first book. And you're probably right. This is the uh, uh, among the key characters. This is the first major death. Here we have uh, Drogo. Now, Drogo in this chapter, he's like a god walking around on Earth. At this point in the book, it just it's it's almost like he's immortal, which... It's hard to imagine this character departing how he does in such short order. And he basically goes out from a scratch. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, it was, (laughs) but it was fun. It was fun to revisit Drogo just for a little bit. You know, this is sort of like peak, peak Drogo, you know, (laughs) he's at the height of his powers. Yeah, and I just I just have Momoa in my head because I think he captured Drogo so well. Right. Yeah. Um. Now he's Duncan Idaho. Now he's yes. Duncan Idaho. 
<laughs> it was so nice to see Duncan Idaho. It, it felt like it felt like I had an old friend uh, back in my life again. Um, notable introductions in this chapter: uh, mm-hmm. we meet the crones with their dark, flinty eyes. Mm-hmm. There are eunuchs who serve the crones. Uh, we meet for the first time the womb of the world. And we hear the title, Stallion Who Mounts the World, mm-hmm. and the name Rago, mm-hmm. uh, which they chant. Notable departures. Yes, Viserys. Uh, goodbye forever, Viserys. <laughs> um, and then notable show differences. So clearly it's a much smaller hall. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it could just be, you know, first season, lo- lower budget. And mm-hmm. It very well could be that. In the book, it's supposed to be 5,000 Dothraki in this massive hall, which gives you this sense that when Drogo tells Viserys, like, y- your place is over there, like, way in the back. Mm-hmm. I mean, this place is, it's got to be enormous, Drogo is basically telling Viserys, go sit out in the cold over there, considering how big this place must have been. Mm-hmm. Not just the lowest point in his Kalasar, but the lowest point in the entire nation, essentially, is where yes. he's telling him to go. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The longer the ponytail, the closer you are to the, where the meat is in the hall. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, of course, you know, Viserys is supposed to be at the at the very last of the line. Mm-hmm. All right, was there anything about this chapter, Shiloh, that you noticed with your medievalism superpowers <laughs> that mere mortals would not notice? Actually, um, I guess kind of back on the gender thing just a little bit. I mm-hmm. did find it interesting that it, and this only seems to happen in Daenerys' storyline, where conquest and sexual violence are equated. Um, with the stallion that mounts the world. Right, that's right. So sexual domination uh-huh. as warfare is a metaphor that seems to come up with her at least a couple of times, because we see it again in the House of the Undying. Oh, tell me, little, remind me about that. Uh, the little pink rat men who are chewing on and sexually assaulting the, the woman who's the who is supposed to be Westeros. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And I went looking, and I didn't really see it anywhere else. So it's kind of a kind of a dainty thing, and I'm, I'm interested in why. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess who else in these books is more associated with conquest? I mean, mm-hmm. I I think Danny is probably the most associated with conquest. I mean, the Iron Islands try to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mance Raider attempting. In some mm-hmm. in some sense, but I I think that of all of the characters in this book, Danny is the character that's associated with conquest, and it could be that that metaphor works for her in a way that it doesn't work for the others. But she is also a woman, so mm-hmm. clearly, you know, you can't overlook that aspect either. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I just thought it was a nifty, or I don't know about nifty. Nifty is probably the bad word for that. <laughs> but an interesting choice on George's part to uh-huh. the twice that I was able to find with a quick search that right. um, that war, that conquest is associated with the sexual violence are both in, in Daenerys' chapters. Right. 
Well, and also, you know, if you look at uh, David Peterson's online dictionary for Dothraki, the Dothraki word for mount and the word for sexual encounter is a, is the same word. Mm-hmm. And so you got that. But then you also have that visual of, you know, what, what do the Dothraki do? Well, they're not farmers. Yeah. They, you know, what they do is they go to villages, they rape and pillage. Mm-hmm. Emphasis, or extort. Emphasis <laughs> on the, the rape, right? Mm-hmm. And... And they take slaves, and then they go sell slaves, or they they steal your idol and bring it back to. So Dothraki warrior way of life is to take spoils, mm-hmm. and among those spoils are usually women who they don't intend to do right by. Yeah, which is going to come up very soon in Danny's narrative. Mm-hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now Steve and I talk about Sam getting beat up, the Sansa with a candle in the window plot, Cersei and the High Sparrow, and the inevitable collision course that Danny and Tyrion are on. But first we talk about the various Jokers and the various Batmans. Here is comic Steve Osborne. 
Steve, so let me just ask you if you were going to rank the Jokers, film portrayal of the Joker. Okay. How would you rank the Jokers? Well, I feel like, okay, this is a tough one. This is actually tougher than it may seem because I think conventional thought is it's Ledger one, and I'm inclined to leave him there, though uh, clearly the more fleshed out Joker is Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal. Mm-hmm. But there's no Batman juxtaposition, right? So, so each, it, so that one becomes a little more challenging because, like, because the Joker, I think he Ledger's Joker works especially well as that juxtaposition to Batman because it's the ultimate frustration for, for Batman, who's he's trying to be the super detective. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to figure out motivations, and you can't when you're dealing with someone who's just sowing chaos. And rewatching The Dark Knight, you take the Joker out of it, it's not great. It's true. And I was kind of surprised. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what my circumstance was that I was looking at it through this sort of new lens, but I think I just started the movie or it was just on uh, when we were in a hotel. So I just kind of got in there and, I, and I'm watching this going like, ah, this isn't real good. And then as soon as Heath Ledger shows up, everything gets better. Mm-hmm. but then if you take that element out it, you know so, so the element's important but then the performance really i think takes it up a notch so that's why i get See, I'm, I'm partial I, to jack man well i just and so i just rewatched 89 batman and uh and i think i like it more now i think i liked it i, I always like it more during a rewatch because the the knock on jack nicholson is that he's just being himself right he's not trying to be the joker i don't mind no, and I don't, and I don't. Think I that don't that's mind a, at all. I think he's fantastic. I think it's a. I think he actually does really well in that. And it's funny how dark and brooding this Batman was at the time, but we've seen so men, so much more darkness of Batman and and the Joker. So that eighty nine feels whimsical. Yeah, it does. It it really does. It's there's some nostalgia there, but in addition to that, it's it feels more comic booky and yeah. less like. Let's see how dark we can make this, and how 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 much we can ground this in reality. Because if you look at it, it's like within moments, he's got helicopters with a Joker logo on it. You know how hard it is to get a helicopter, much less get it repainted with a Joker logo. Well, I mean, it's you know the logo that, that's the big thing, right? Well, because you got to go through so many focus groups. And there's a, I mean, and, and that's the thing that's so fun and silly about it. Like, where does he get all these wonderful toys? It's like, you, you have acid flowers. How do you have, how do you have that? You, you have helicopters with your, you all have the same color car. Yeah, I mean, he's got batarangs and stuff like that, but you're not without toys. You have chattering teeth that will support your weight. He likes the idea. I think he's both jealous and he respects the fact that someone else has toys and toys that maybe he hasn't thought of yet. Well, how did he, how did he get those wonderful toys? Cause I think that's the, that's the bigger question. I understand where Batman gets them. Mm-hmm. He's been working on this for a minute. <laughs> he's a billionaire. You became, uh, you be, you became a radioactive smiley guy like yesterday. <laughs> Um. All right. And here's my other to to close the chapter on that. I can't see Joaquin Phoenix's Joker in a Batman movie. Well, you've heard my idea, right? 
Yeah, yeah. My idea is that Batman is sort of a manifestation of his own psyche. So Batman doesn't exist. Yeah. So he's sort of battling Batman in his own mind. Right. Now, that's great. That would be wonderful. But that, that's the only way I think it could exist, right? Maybe. It depends. I mean... I just don't see... Because the problem is when you start grounding these comic book characters mm-hmm. so much in reality, the second they put on a costume as a bat, you're like, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to explain this. I know mean, you try with like, oh, well, well, this will be the manifestation of people's fears. I'm like, I don't know, man, a guy with a you know utility belt is enough. I don't know that he needs to be like specifically a bat with a cape, like a cape that as soon as you put a cape on him, I think that's the bottom line. You can, you can give him a cowl, but the cape is like, come on, who's, who's buying this? What if the cape was sort of a, made of a smoke baby? <laughs> Just a, a, maybe like a, like a laserium type projection. Yeah, like our big criticism of the smoke baby is that he, the smoke baby just kind of did his thing and left. What if you could get yeah. the smoke baby to hang around and just kind of haunt someone's back? Uh, we're on to something. Like, that's the big, bold move that nobody's making. They've changed the costume so much, but they've never eliminated the cape. Yeah. And I think, I bet you if you eliminate the cape, things change. I mean, I, I feel people might be like, oh, you can't have Batman without the cape. But if you're going to ground it in reality, probably should ditch the cape. The, you know, the capes, the cape actually has a purpose. And the purpose <laughs> seems a little silly if you think about it. The purpose is that he can jump off a tall building and it kind of is a little parachute. Sure. Right? You know, parachutes I, aren't that cool. It, the, yeah. You can't do a whole lot with them. See, I think that that would be better if it was actually parachute pants. <laughs> and so when he, jump, when he jumps off of the building, the pants kind of balloon out. He's just all cape. He's all cape. <laughs> he's just the, he's the jellyfish. Steve, I think you got your wish this episode in that Sam finally gets the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, man, Sam Sam gets his come up and I think that I mean I think if if I understand your position correctly, you like Sam. I do. But in order for this world to be believable, Sam Sam can't just go through life unscathed. Right. He's got he's gotta get a beat down. Like he is in mortal peril every single time he leaves his bedroom. Right. And uh so this is I think this is the first time I mean, even when the White Walkers were chasing him. Right. They've just left him. And so finally... Sam gets it all, man. You get this episode. He gets everything he needed. Well, okay. Let's talk about this. Because you really wanted him to hook up. But the whole thing has to be pretty painful, right? Like, he was just beat. He was just beat to a bloody pulp. I imagine in Westeros, most of the sexual experiences involve pain in some degree. I always think that in movies where someone just like it's pretty common in a movie that someone punches you in the face and so now your lip is cut mm-hmm. and then that character ends up engaging in some sort of overly passionate kiss. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, oh, ah, yeah, yeah, that's got to hurt. I'll take that over every morning breath kiss that just seems to be ignored. 
Yeah, well, that's, how that's many movies are people making out when they wake up in the morning? I'm like, good God, man, you guys smell like kitten food. Well, Don't. I just want you to know that almost every kiss in Game of Thrones has got to be a bad breath kiss. Oh, absolutely right. So I mean, I think I think with the exception just, of like you know, there's there's probably a couple characters like like Renly probably brushes teeth. Right. Oh, I bet she smells fantastic. <laughs> Anyone who's shaving his chest yeah. is probably going to brush his teeth. Yeah, he's doing fine. That's probably everyone the- else. Like they maybe brush their teeth with like a stick once every few weeks. Right. It's all bad breath all the time. Well, for sure. So anyway, whenever I see like someone like Sam get kissed on screen, just like, man, I'd just be wincing and be like, yeah, you know what? Not right. Not the lips. Not right now. Yeah, I don't want it. Well, he's also he's also like, look, man, I don't know if I'm going to get this chance again. What am I going to do? That's true. Yeah, this is his one shot. Right. So you would. Yeah, he <laughs> he'd probably endure an awful lot. Now, this actually is one of the one of the things that didn't work for me this episode was him being saved by ghost. Oh, OK. Yeah, that seemed a little convenient. So, yeah, I kind of felt like. I was almost expecting it. I don't know. It's probably because I've seen these before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would that helps, I think. <laughs> but every now no, and again, I. Every now and again, I think, how are they going to get out of this? Well, the the, the wolf's probably going to come around the corner. <laughs> and even if they don't do it, that's in the back of my head. And so this time when the wolf does come around the corner, I was thinking, ah, that's convenient. Right. Especially because we haven't seen a wolf in a minute. Wolf comes in. Of course, they're scared of the wolf. I don't know. How many times can they do that? And the wolf growls and then the good guys get away. I don't know how many times they can pull that. off. I don't know. There's only what, three more seasons. So few, (laughs) so a few more at least. All right. So anyway, I did like, I like that that Sam gets his wish. I like that. He shows a little bit of courage. There was a little Rocky original Rocky in that sequence where he, he doesn't win the fight. But he survives the fight and he gets the girl. Yeah, it, and it has sort of a almost feels like a rocky ending, right? What happened to your hat? You know, like that's kind of. All right, uh, something that worked for you this episode. Um, I certainly enjoy finally seeing the Tyrion Danny. It's funny because it wasn't like a long time coming, but I think, you know, as soon as it was starting to work its way, mm-hmm. that this is where things were going. Mm. Uh, I think I was low key anticipating this pairing. And so to see it come to fruition or like it became fairly quick in some ways. Right. Because it's like this could have been something that goes on a lot longer. The journey mm-hmm. of getting him to, to, to Danny. So when it when he shows up, you're just like. Oh, this, this, and you see, like, you're like, this is what I was waiting for. And it, it didn't disappoint this whole him back in that kind of a, a setting. Mm-hmm. Everything just felt right. Again, we don't know where this is going to lead necessarily, but just seeing him in like a royal court type situation, it's, it's a look that works. Well, the other thing about it is that, like, we know that he's this amazing asset to whatever you know whatever monarch wants to utilize him he's actually has this little superpower he's really good at ruling right so Varys knows it but it's almost like no one else knows it and then of course you've got Danny who's got all of the personality to, but she's got this sort of 
council vacuum. So it's just this perfect little fit. Yeah, I mean, everything is coming together. Yeah. I Again, I have to tip my cap to this High Sparrow narrative that I just really didn't think was going to work, and I'm still, like, fascinated by it. So, right. So this all comes back on Cersei. Right. So this was the, we talked about the last episode. Hey, where's it going to, the other shoe has to drop. And then the shoe just got thrown at her. She, yeah, she's gone from, you know, sort of the single autocrat of King's Landing, which she's been wanting the whole time. And there's always been sort of a power struggle between right, the two. Because even if she's got Joffrey, who's her son, he was such a loose cannon. She, That's right. She had to spend, she had yeah, spend most of her time She's always negotiating. She's always right. negotiating. So she finally gets what she wants. She's, she can rule by herself for the first time. And she <laughs> she thinks that giving power to this uh, religious order is going to help her. And so she goes from like the most powerful person in King's Landing to someone with zero power. Like yeah. overnight. Well, what what a fascinating thing now, right? So she's get she gets imprisoned. Marjorie's imprisoned. What? <laughs> Tommen's pouting. <laughs> Just yeah, and Tommen's got no one. I mean, who's Tommen have now? Like Sir Pounce? No one. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. And there's and this is kind of what we talked about with Littlefinger the last time. When you make no true allies, all you do is you make real enemies. And so now yeah. Cersei's in, like, who's who's on your side? I mean, Jamie's out mm-hmm. trying to get the daughter back. So he's yeah, the not only, even there. The only thing he that, doesn't have any control or power anyway because he kind of relinquished that when he went back that's to the, right. part of the King's Guard. That's right. The so, only person that she's ever tried to make an alliance with that I can recall is Littlefinger, who's got his... <laughs> Littlefinger's got a whole other thing happening, right? Right. Uh, so if your only ally is Littlefinger, then... Well, the irony, the, the probably the, the person that could help her the most is now hanging out with Danny. That's right. You're totally right about that. You know, I never thought about this before, but she makes the same mistake Ned Stark makes. Because Ned Stark is thinking, I need backup. I'm going to go talk to Littlefinger and arrange to have the city guard back me up. And so he goes and makes this deal with Littlefinger. And that's really his only ally. Yeah. And then Littlefinger totally betrays him. Then now here's Cersei. She's thinking, okay, I'm going to ally with Littlefinger. And all of a sudden, I mean, I guess she tried to make some kind of alliance with this high sparrow guy. Right. This is a her hubris coming back, right? I mean, she's she kind of sees the High Sparrow as a lesser entity, a means to an end. Like at the end of the day, I if I have to, I'll just pull a plug on this. Yeah. Uh, but when you're dealing with somebody who's, you know, even if it's for show, they're at least their whole gig is this sort of moral high road. You're not going to really be able to negotiate out of that, even if it is just for appearance sake, because they're not about to compromise what they've been building for this, because this is what it's about. I mean, you got a guy with no shoes. What what are you going to convince him that you're going to offer him? Yeah, exactly. Okay, something that didn't work for you. Well, that's easy, man. That, I, <laughs> that Dorn uh, prison scene is just was hot garbage. <laughs> I did like Braun's voice. I think he's got a nice voice. I like everything about Braun, and he could not do anything to save this scene. <laughs> just, just, it was, 
I like that she, they've got a special kind of poison that only kicks in once you see boobs. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing. It's like, how, how are you feeling? I feel fine. How's your head? I feel fine. Let me show you my boobs. Oh, no, I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I'm dying a lot. I mean, just, just so weird. I mean, this is goofier than the original Dario, this whole sequence. I actually like Dario a little bit in this, this episode. He's got hey, this line that says, all rulers are butchers or meat. Yeah. No, and I kind of got the yeah. idea, the sense that, like, he's open-minded. He knows that she's got to marry for politics. But he's not above sort of reminding her that she can do what she wants. Right. And if she wants to, she could just marry for love. And I like that there's someone in Danny's life that kind of says... Yeah, but you realize this is all this is all kind of a ruse. This is all kind of a for show. And you don't have to play along if you don't want to. So I don't know. I, I normally I don't I'm not a big fan of Dario, but I did like him in this episode. Well, and I think what we're seeing is we're now we're, we're the, with Tyrion now on the scene and well, because nobody like she doesn't have Danny doesn't have the council she needs and that's why Tyrion's important and then you have Dario who kind of has this he's not he's not the he's not going to be good counsel for long-term leadership hmm. necessarily because that's not really his thing uh he's he's you know he's a sellsword plus his he, he well, is what he is so with with booty call options right and Dario, I mean, Dario's got, he's got some conflict, obviously. He's, his relationship with Danny's fairly complicated. And then, and I don't think that he's, he's more of a survival guy. Um, he's probably Grey, not looking at. Grey Worm is, he, he'll make that scowl he always makes. That's, he, there's he, some that, value there, right? There's a value, there's value in a good scowl. Um, and a furrow. Because brow, once, which, now that Jorah's gone, who's going to keep that scowl going? Right. You need Grey Worm around for that. Yeah, we just need to get him a bad hairpiece. <laughs> uh, hey, I think that we've buried the lead here. This whole thing with Sansa and Theon and the candle. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was just... I've seen this before. I know how this all plays out, but I was just riveted by the whole thing. I was... It's just a gut punch when you realize that Theon is not, <laughs> he's just not the person he once was. You know, he's yeah. completely cowed that Sansa gets found out and that the woman who was going to help Sansa got her skin taken off. Yeah, that was rough, man. That was a, that was a rough, rough sequence. It, it's, it's not even like, I mean, I guess in King's Landing, at least like the Hound or Tyrion or Littlefinger could, although not altruistic, could come to her rescue. Right. And she's just, there's just she's, no one. She's totally, totally alone. Now, now looking back at the last episode and, and the problem yeah, yeah. With, with the ending, now here you have just this awful macabre scenario for her. Couldn't you have done all of this as in lieu of like, yeah, I don't know if you get, right. maybe, maybe you don't get them married or this is building up to the marriage. Like you're building up to the wedding day and this happens. And this is, this to me seems like plenty, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also a little bit like, 
uh, okay, Brianne, it's candle or bust. Right, like, right, right, right. Like, right. like what, what I, that part, I'm just like, so if she doesn't put the candle up, you're like, I'll just wait. I mean, either you, well, I, guess I think the she idea, has to because Sansa, the last she's had an interaction she with Sansa, her, right? yeah. he was rejected. The only way that Brienne can actually help Sansa is if Sansa permits it. I guess. Yeah, she gives the, the go ahead, right? So, right. And again, though, it feels like a lot can happen. You know, y- you should be aware of where she's at. Like, it might not be as easy as you think to just throw a candle up there with all that's going on. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she's got what she's got, I guess. But it just feels like, like, there's your opportunity to do something. But again, I don't, I, I'm assuming this will play out. But, and but I like your here. point. I like your point here is that given what we did in this episode, you absolutely didn't need the rape scene in the previous episode. Right, because this is already horrific and perilous. And she feels helpless. And now you've added this other element to it where it's like, that's hard. It was still hard for me to get into this because I was like, I don't know if I want to see the aftermath. And so you almost have to kind of suspend it now and be like, all right, yeah, that was bad. Let's just move on, I guess. I'm like, oh, it's getting worse. Okay. There was a, I mean, there's a hint here, Steve, that... um, Melisandre wants to barbecue Shireen. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't. I don't think that Davos is gonna like like that plan. No. Um, and I'm not gonna like the fact that Davos and Stannis are gonna have to argue about this. <laughs> yeah. You can't kill her. You, you, you can't. You can't sacrifice your daughter. I'll do whatever the whatever the Red God says. I'm the king here. I'm the rifle air. Heather, by the way, uh, on record, uh, loves Stannis' voice. Really? Yeah, she doesn't know I can do the impression, so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to pull that out at just the right time. Nice. Just to be clear for the listeners out there, if it was thought of like, ooh, this is going to be something like, you know, to try to woo her. No, this is what I'm going to use in an argument. Um, because if i'm already in a position to be wooing her i could i could do paul lynn's voice and and probably get away with it uh but if i if i could break out the stannis during an argument i feel like it'll neutralize a little bit right like so, even if it's completely all right my fault. let's imagine that paul lynn and stannis are both playing hollywood squares <laughs> they they get into an argument on who gets to be center square uh, this, this is like pre-production meeting. Yes, that's right. I want to hear the argument between Paul Lynn and Stan. Look, everybody knows that Paul's time has come and gone. I'm the rifle out of the middle square. Look, Stannis, look, you're flashing the pan, okay? You're nothing without the smoke baby, right? The smoke baby's not here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> For this bird's eye view, I continue my conversation with Kavita Finn about Cersei and medieval analogs. Here is Dr. Kavita Finn. Kavita, would it be safe to say that you are an expert on medieval queens? That would be a, I think that's a safe thing to say, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, of course. I was thinking specifically of your book about 15th century queens during the War of the Roses. Yes, it's called The Last Plantagenet Consorts. It came out in 2012. Now, let me ask you this. Do you feel like Cersei 
has a natural analog or do you think she's a hybrid of a bunch of different queens or is she an, an invention all of Martin's imagination? Uh, I feel like she is kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different characters, a bunch of different figures. Um, in the uh, in a book chapter that I wrote for uh, a book that came out early 2019 um, called, uh, I think it was The Queenship and the Women of Westeros, um, one of the things that I argued was that Cersei kind of represents an amalgamation of several different figures. Um, one of them is the romance figure, the, uh, the literary figure of Queen Guinevere uh, from the Arthurian legend. There are a lot of elements of Cersei that are twists on um, either things that Queen Guinevere did, supposedly did or uh, things that were done by people around her. Mm. Um, but as far as historical analogs go, there are two that definitely come to mind. And it's interesting how kind of both of them uh, seem to be coexisting within this character. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's further, well, what makes this even more complicated is that um, Martin is drawing not just on the historical versions of these characters, but on the Shakespearean versions of these characters. Um, mm. So there are all kinds of different things that are, it, it, it's a giant melting pot um, in many, many ways. But the two of uh, these, these two characters, one of them is Margaret of Anjou, uh, who was the wife of Henry VI of England. Margaret was reportedly this uh a lot of this is uh, is hearsay and rumor but supposedly as a lot of, as a lot of our information <laughs> is by the way yeah continue yes a lot of yes a lot of our information is hearsay rumor stereotype etc so please take with much much salt yeah um but the the popular rumors about margaret were one that she wanted to rule for herself um what we do know is that she did attempt to rule as regent when her husband, Henry VI, suffered an incapacitating mental breakdown in huh, 1453. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Margaret was uh, eight months pregnant at the time when this happened, um, which made it especially fun for her, I am sure. Um, but uh, she tried to take, she tried to uh, to rule as regent because Margaret, uh, being from Anjou, she was coming from France and having the queen act as regent for the king during a period of um, incapacitation was completely normal in France. That was that was just huh. something that happened. Um, in England, it was not normal. Um, the last time that a woman attempted to rule on behalf of a of a male relative. Um, she was eventually thrown out. Uh, and this was Isabella of France about 100 years earlier. Um, not co no coincidence, I think, that both of them came from France. So we get those elements from, um, from I think, uh, Margaret of Anjou. The other element that we get from Margaret of Anjou is the relationship between Cersei and her son, Joffrey. Huh. Um, Margaret uh, had one son. She had only one son, and this was Edward of Lancaster. He was born eight years after her marriage to Henry VI. So people right. were wondering why had she not gotten pregnant earlier. Finally, she did get pregnant. Unfortunately, right before uh, this kid was born, her husband ended up falling into a basically a three-month catatonic state is roughly how it's, uh, how it's huh. described okay. in various chronicles yeah. sources. So by the time he came back, uh, sort of came back to consciousness, he had a kid. Right. 
And there, that, of course, gave rise to rumors that maybe this wasn't really his kid. Maybe this was a changeling. Like these were, these were very typical rumors. And they were almost always used to discredit queens, um, to discredit the kings that the queens were married to, all of that kind of thing. So Margaret uh, reportedly was very protective of this son. She, stayed, she kept him with her as much as possible. Um, this was also because once this kid was maybe eight or nine years old, England had erupted into civil war. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that she would have her kid with her when we had all of this political and military conflict going on. So he ended up staying with her for pretty much his entire life, which was unusual for a royal heir, but not so unusual for a royal heir who was in exile during a civil war. Mm. And there were also reports that he was like, that he was sadistic, that he would talk about nothing but chopping off people's heads. That's in a diplomatic letter. I don't know how true it is. Um, And unfortunately, there are a number of modern depictions of Margaret that claim that there's some sort of weird incesty thing going on. I personally think that's nonsense, but it was it it has shown up in pop culture enough times that I feel like I need to address it. Yeah, I think that one of the arguments that I've made previously and try this on for size Mm -hmm. I think that as Martin is creating his world and his characters, he's inspired by, you know, the history of the War of the Roses and, you know, other other periods in history. But he's just as inspired by the rumors. Oh, yeah. And I think oh, yeah. that a lot of times what he'll do is he'll think, well, of course, this is a rumor about Henry VIII or whoever it is. Um, but what if it was true? Like, what? Where? Where would the yeah. story go if if these if these rumors were actually true? Sure. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's a I think that's a great theory. I mean, one of the things he's actually mentioned this in interviews a couple of times um, that what drew him to history uh, to like the study of history he claimed was I believe he actually literally calls it the juicy stuff. Um, He's like, I wanted the juicy stuff, the love affairs, the murder, all of that. Right, and like, and right. to be, and, and I do, and to be fair, like, I, I don't begrudge him this. That's how I got into history. Like, I love the juicy stuff. Uh-huh. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, that's how I got into the Wars of the Roses in the first place because, oh my God. Right. Um, uh, talk about family drama dialed up to 11. But yes, I, I absolutely think that's in there. It's like, what if this was actually how it happened? And you have these exaggerated rumors and you have right. these sort of um, these deep, dark, twisted things that are attributed to people. And that probably didn't happen. Right. Because, another, I mean, one of the things that gets bandied about about Margaret is like constantly there were all of these uh, accusations that she was unfaithful, that she was... Um, that she was having love affairs. Right. Which, sure. uh, if you actually look at sort of the records that we have, that lady did not have time for, the, for any sort of nonsense like that. She was way too busy running around leading armies, dealing with huh. all kinds of political fallout and nonsense. She did not have time for that. So clearly that would be another rumor that we probably see play out in Martin's imagination. Mm-hmm. But he's not it's not he's not inventing it out of thin air. You know, he's no. he's he's got these he's got these rumors to work with and he's absolutely going to exploit them. Right. Yeah. I mean, and one and he has mentioned specifically that he is sort of drawing on Shakespeare and his sort of right. the it's definitely Mar- the historical Margaret filtered through uh, Shakespeare because Shakespeare has her just straight up committing murder. 
on a number of occasions. Huh. Um, like he, he, he throws her into the violence. So, uh, and he has a number of lines about like this, uh, this woman's general tiger's heart wrapped in woman's hide, like all of these incredible insults that he throws at her. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and she's just the most she is the most powerful character in that play. She is fabulous. If you're looking for Kavita's book online, Amazon's got it. It's called The Last Plantagenet Consorts, Gender, Genre and Historiography. It's only 80 bucks. But if you want to rent it on Kindle, it's only $10. And let me just tell you, as an academic who's written $80 books before, a $10 rental for someone's doctoral dissertation is not a bad deal. And I wish I had that option many, many times when I was writing my dissertation. So my thanks again to Kavita, and that is all for this week.